Heat Miami, we're here once again. Screen Heat. Doing the thing. Miami. Miami style. We are rolling with another great interview uh, conducted by Kevin Sharpley at the Miami Media and Film Market, this time with senior production agent at the United Talent Agency, UTA, Craig Bernstein, will be our guest today. We have a lot of agency talk. Oh, yes. Shop talk. You know what? Let's talk about agencies really quick. Okay. Just so we can give a quick overview. We can. Or underview. Underview? <laughs> Review? <laughs> of what an agency is. Sure. And, and what's the purpose of agencies? So, yeah, uh, basically, uh, and just to get this in, our sponsors, this podcast, once again, is brought to you by Kajik Multimedia. Cinevision. Chemical. MMFM. AKA Miami Media and Film Market. So, what does an agency do? What is its purpose? What is its function? It's, in, it's one of those careers in Hollywood that, you know, and it's been said in the past, no one really goes to L.A. saying they want to be an agent. It's not one of those things that I think maybe today, but that you really as- aspired to. It was just kind of a position that was seen as sort of a necessary, I don't want to say a necessary evil, but it's, you know, as Craig will mention in the interview, the grease in the wheels. It's it's the connectors. It's the 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 hubs of, of information, of talent. They are gatekeepers for their clients. They are supposed to understand the nature of the business, the trends, to make sure that their clients are not only making smart creative decisions, but smart financial decisions. An agency started with actors. Well, yeah, they started for the with, most part with good old William Morris representing vaudeville acts. Essentially, vaudeville acts. It went back that far. Yeah. Next thing you know, they're repping writers, directors. Right. Now, talent above and below the line. Correct. Yeah, that's Craig's focus is 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 mainly what we consider below the line talent or production talent, which are your cinematographers and your editors and your costume designers. And and now the the ones that are working at the highest levels of those fields all have agents. Some of them even have managers and publicists. Sports stars. Sports stars. Now they're representing companies and brands. The idea that you can now take a variety of talent and mix it with a, a company or a financier and put together an entire project from start to finish and correct me if i'm wrong i saw a statistic just a few days ago that 89 percent to 92 percent of scripted shows are packaged by agencies that's right what what we call the big four so uh traditionally and this has been for for many years now there are four top agencies in hollywood and and so together they again package the vast majority of of primarily the television content and film content that you see out in the world and we want to talk some of the biggest stars in hollywood the right. rock he has an agency and an agent of course and a manager and a manager that's right who's also his producer <laughs> wow <laughs> danny garcia that's right yeah we're, we're looking for you we're looking for you danny we're Hit us calling back. for you yeah that's going to be a great interview if we can if we can get danny to come in here and really get an understanding of what she does from both a management and a producing perspective which you know is kind of the difference between an agent and a manager usually a manager has way less clients than an agent uh because they're really involved in not only the 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 sort of projects that their 
clients are currently working on, they really delve deep into the just the whole development of the artist, of their persona. Uh, they have to interact not only with the agents, but also with their publicists and make sure that the whole package, the whole, you know, now these big artists are really their own brands is being presented in the best light and that there is not only a, a current trajectory, but a future trajectory of where that career is going. Yeah. So other people with agents. Other people. Well, Tom Holland. Tom Holland, yeah. yeah. Tom Cruise. Most of the big actors, and, and again, most of those are represented by one of the big four. Right. Yeah, so it's either a CAA, or uh, which was William Morris Endeavor. Now I think they're just calling it Endeavor. Uh, of course, ICM Partners and the United Talent Agency, UTA. So you'll find most of the big stars usually at one of those four uh, agencies. Yes. Yes. So, so yeah, there's, there's a bunch of them out there. There's, you know, major Academy Award winning directors, you know, uh, the Martin Scorsese's of the world, the Spielberg's of the world, they all have agents. Yes. And it's, it's cinematographers, of course, cinematographers. And Craig's going to get into some of his clients uh, roster now at UTA, which are some of the best in the business. I mean, these really are the people at the top of their game. And uh, oftentimes they will need to present a certain level of work and a showreel in order to get representation at one of the bigger agencies. Uh, Some of them will, you know, Craig does deal also with independent film as well. You know, it's a big passion for him. So he he's willing to go out there and discover that next big DP that maybe hasn't had the biggest credits yet, but maybe was an award winner at Sundance or uh, is really, you know, moving up the ladder with a director. And one of the interesting things, particularly about DPs, is that usually their career follows the directors that they work with. Yeah, that's right. And that, that happens quite often, you know, uh, when I was, and I'll, I'll get into more detail of how I actually met Craig and actually worked for him for almost, uh, three and a half years, mm-hmm. uh, several years ago. But uh, one of our clients at the time was Wally Pfister, whose career rose with Christopher Nolan, mm-hmm. starting with, you know, uh, Memento and then getting into some of these other films. That And as as Christopher Nolan's career grew, so did Wally's. And he just became the top DP, ended up doing the Batman movies and Inception and just, you know, but a really talented person. And, and that sort of visual communication was really a collaboration between DP and director. You know, and I love to see that. And this is something of note to see this collaboration amongst people who start out and as they evolve through their career. Right. You know, you want to think uh, Michael B. Jordan and, you know, because Michael B. Jordan start. Well, he did not start, but, you know, Michael B. Jordan in. Well, uh, well when they first did uh, Michael B. Jordan first work, you're talking about working with Ryan Coogler. Yeah, with Ryan Coogler. But uh, that that for, uh, Fruitvale Station. So you want to think Fruitvale Station. Yeah. yeah. You want to think Ryan Coogler, Michael B. Jordan, Fruitvale Station. Right. And then that evolved to Creed. Right. Yeah, so exactly. you see this evolution of, and, you know, the talent right. that continues through the pipeline as they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. And and, and Black Panther, obviously. Right obviously. And yep. then and, you know, and there is also a DP tied to that, which which actually Craig's agency currently represents as well. Rachel Morrison, mm-hmm. which is one that being the first female DP to ever be nominated for an Oscar. That's a big deal. Love it. Yeah. Love yeah, it. Yeah, for Mudbound. Uh, but then obviously through the relationship with... Remarkable movie. Yeah. Uh, just a great film, you know, beautifully shot. And then to go from that to doing something as epic and huge as Black Panther is is incredible. Yeah. So, but again, it comes down to relationships and, and this sort of not only technical but creative team that gets built 
uh, uh, and and usually they they follow each other's careers, you know, and and it it makes it easier because there are times where you do have to work with a different DP, you know, maybe your your main DP is not available, or maybe there's you know personal situations that's going on that they're just they just can't work, and you have to work with new DPs. But it's like you know I think that when you do have a situation where you've been working with with the same person over the years, it's almost like an unspoken language. It's like you start you you kind of you can. Um, sort of a how can I say this you, you almost like anticipate the other's needs before yeah, yeah, they that's even right. see it yeah, and it, right. it helps you move quicker on set and it just makes the whole process easier so yeah speaking so, yeah. of process agencies Right. They well, work with writers. They work with writers. Well, they did. Well, <laughs> the big four did. You There's know, a process going on right now. There is. And, you know, we're, we're going back to this, which is still making the headlines in Variety and, and the trades, which is this sort of ongoing scuffle between the big four agencies and the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, in terms of, again, this issue of packaging that, you know, as we discussed, agencies, as we had mentioned earlier, have grown to such a, a, a powerful unit because they represent talent aqua- across such a wide spectrum of the industry. So they're able to use that to their advantage and ideally to their client's advantage to put together projects from a writer to an actor to a director to uh, a producer and sell that cinematographer lock stock and barrel to a studio or a network and so the 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 point of contention now is that the writers feel that because agencies are packaging and they're taking essentially producing fees as opposed to 10 percent of their clients uh uh, fees what's happening is that they feel that now the agents are acting again in the best interest of the project and not in the best interest of the writing talent. And that's that's been sort of, again, the, the anchor issue between the writers and the major agencies. And that led to, back in April, uh, a decision made by by the, the board of the WGA, which was- The to, Writers Guild of America. Yeah, the Writers Guild of America, to fire their agents, essentially, to get rid of them as representation and to bypass the agencies and utilize other resources to get work, essentially. Yeah. Whether it's an attorney or a manager or, you know, the writer themselves having a particular relationship with a studio or a network executive. So that that's started to get messy because now what's happened is that the, the big four agents, it seems like they've banded together. The WGA is on the other side and there's this kind of tug of war, but they haven't really gone back to the negotiating table now in over two months. And some of the members now, it seems, are starting to lose some patience on the writer's side. And there is... A, a big election. We've talked about this on previous episodes coming up in September, where they're seeing it almost as a referendum on how the current leadership is handling the negotiations uh, with another faction uh, being led by some what they call now opposition candidates. Uh, Variety quoted this gentleman, Nick Jonas Jr., who is really against the tactics of the WGA. He's saying, and I quote, I believe we've disrupted ourselves more than we've disrupted the big four. Wow. That's a big statement. Wow. That is huge. Yeah. So, you know, Traditionally, you know, the idea of a guild or a union is that the workers come together. They band together. They band together. There's one voice. There's one message. But it seems like in this particular case that there is a, a division within the guild. Well, you know, it is something that the election is coming up. Right. So so this will be resolved very soon. Again, yeah. if the majority of writers vote to continue the, the leadership and their positions, then that's going to continue. If the, let's call it the opposition wins, then essentially what's going to happen is that there could be a new series of tactics to re-engage with the agencies and perhaps find that middle ground. So folks, to be continued. 
Yeah. The saga continues. It's exciting. Speaking so, of continuing sagas, mm. we have an extra added bonus for our listeners. Oh, yes. Bonus content. We had such a great time with Carlos Rafael Rivera. Yes, our composer. He was phenomenal. That we have some extras. Some extras that will be on the website. Yeah. So, ScreenHeatMiami.com. ScreenHeatMiami.com. It's going to be Click great- on... And you will hear some behind-the-scenes talk about Star Wars. Oh, yes. Yeah, we talked about Star Wars. We've talked about the new theme park attractions. Uh, there's going to be a new hotel being built. The new hotel. Did you see the renderings for the hotel? I, I, I've seen some preliminary. It looks amazing. Like, you're really in the world. It's oh, my goodness. crazy. I got to go. Yeah, I'm excited. So, but yeah, we, we won't get too much into it now. We definitely wanted to tease that. So once you see that that additional content up on the site, definitely check it out. We'll remind you when it's up and, and check it out. It's going to be good. It is. It's going to be great. Yeah. The game was great. The game. Oh, yes. So this past weekend, it was the, the, the start of the 150th anniversary of college football. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big number. With a big game. Yeah, a big game. A big game for us. Miami versus Florida. We're both University of Miami alums. Yeah, so obviously we were pulling for the U. I did a music video with four of the players from the undefeated championship Season really of two thousand. All four of them went to the NFL. Can, can you can you can you can you acapella a little bit of it? Here comes the hurricanes. They're coming in this pouring rain. Yes, in the pouring rain. And actually, one of the players is the cornerback coach now, Mike Rump. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yep, for the team. Wow. But it was really interesting to watch that game, even though, and we should have won. I know, know we kind of gave it away. It was it was rough. I mean, both teams looked like they were not really just just ready yet for a real they weren't ready for prime time right they weren't ready for for an actual game for the season to start especially you know two teams that are uh considered amongst the most uh important i would say in college football you know the brand of miami and their five national championships florida and what they've done you know and their their runs within the sec this powerful conference and then them being in-state rivals there was a lot of pressure on that game that you know the first year of uh, coach Diaz, Manny Diaz, who took over as the head coach this season, and so many expectations, but a lot of young players. And yeah. Well, the U, ESPN. Yes. So this is the tie-in to our industry, which is uh, college game day. But before you go into that, I have to give a shout out. Billy Corbin, Alfred Spellman, 30 for 30. Ah, that's right. The most watched 30 for 30 of all time. That's the right. U. Yeah. To UM grads as well uh, from Miami have produced a plethora of documentaries, usually with a Miami spin, not always, but yeah, everything from Cocaine Cowboys uh, to most recently uh, Magic City Hustle, and then of course their U documentaries, which which again really have been the most popular in that series for ESPN. So yeah, but job. that's ESPN. But ESPN is also under the umbrella of Disney. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And they so watching that game. You felt, yes, the mothership. <laughs> you felt the presence. <laughs> it was around, and, and like I was saying before, it started in the morning, college game day being hosted. The game was in Orlando, to be fair. Uh, so at camp, it was Camping World Stadium, uh, and college game day was hosted at the Magic Kingdom. So they weren't being subtle about that. <laughs> and obviously the whole time they Surprise were... Surprise, Mickey didn't throw out the ball. Yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> hop one, hop two. <laughs> Go out, Goofy. Oh, yeah. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say that 
I don't know. I'm not gonna guess. I, I think Mickey'd probably be more of a uh, of a of a gator. No, you know what? Mickey'd be a cane. What do you think? Well, Disney doesn't care. They don't care. No, neutral. Yeah. <laughs> but even the the branding, the advertisements, everything. You yeah, know? the in- you're starting to see the integration because these big media companies have to go direct to consumer now. So they're starting to show the full weight of all their brands, of all their intellectual properties, and there's Disney in particular who has Disney Plus launching in November, which Apparently, you can also upgrade to in your package also include ESPN Plus and Hulu for $12.99 a month or something like that. So they were already starting to tease some of their ESPN Plus content. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea being that now visually the consumer is seeing football, ESPN, Disney all in the same package. Wow. It's coming. Wow. Streaming Wars. That's what it was all about on Saturday. The game was interesting. It was exciting. But when I saw that, I'm like, man, the streaming wars are here. And these big media companies are not shy about it. They are not. (laughs) Yeah. They are not. And speaking of not being shy, Mm. Mr. Craig Bernstein was not shy on this interview. Oh, no. He was so, I mean, like I said, I'll get into it. Craig is a a good friend, a a colleague, and a mentor. And uh, I can kind of get into how we met and then kind of set up the interview. Yeah, I want to hear it All right. very quick. So, so it's just actually, to, I mean, tell us a little bit of background just to set up going into Mr. Bernstein. And yeah. then after the interview, right. let's hear about your relationship with Mr. Bernstein. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll, I'll end when I sort of met him, but it has to do with, with my origin story as well. And it started dun, 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 dun. <laughs> back in 2001. I graduated the University of Miami Film School and theater arts program uh, with a double major in motion pictures uh, and theater. And so I spent about a year here in South Beach working at a boutique modeling agency uh, at the time. It was uh, two ladies that used to work with uh, Wilhelmina when it was owned by Michelle Pommier. And then... Uh, My first agency. There you go. There's, there's a, I'm probably sure I saw your comp cards there on the wall. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> so who would have known back then? Mm-hmm. So I, I, It I all comes hired. together. Um, I spent almost a year. I was just an office assistant, you know, just kind of running coffee, making copies, ordering new comp cards uh, for the models, making sure everything was fully stocked, uh, taking messages for the agents, you know, doing normal office work, a very tiny boutique agency. We had some some pretty big projects, though. You know, we booked some national commercials for AT&T and we worked with Budweiser. And, uh, you know, whenever there was a film or TV show being shot, we also represented actors and we would send actors out for those roles. And so that lasted almost a year. And essentially what happened was, you know, 9-11 hit. And as everyone who was in the advertising or media industry knew at the time, the first thing they cut after that tragedy was the advertising budgets. I think both for financial reasons and number two, for creative reasons, now there was this new sort of like awareness, like we have to be careful what we put out there. What message are we putting out there now that it seems like America was hit at its core? And it was heavy, you know, it was a big deal that reverberated throughout the country, but particularly in the ad agency, you know, we would go from getting maybe 20, 30 calls for castings a day to maybe 20 a week. Mm -hmm. So um, it was a transitional time, but I always knew in my heart, being a film major, loving the industry that I wanted to get out to Los Angeles. So I made the decision, uh, it was in June. I took a, a little trip to LA, like a scouting trip. I stayed at the Beverly Terrace Motor Hotel, which was between Beverly Hills and West Hollywood. Yeah, I know that one. You know one. that one? Yeah. 
and and it was I didn't know at the time but but you know they gave me a good rate so I stayed there but I was like dead center and I was able to just kind of walk around and just explore the city and I just knew then okay I have to make this happen so flew back to Miami told my parents you know up until that point I had still been living with my family just graduated college had my first assistant job so I fly back to Miami and I basically at, at that point I'd still even been living with my parents in Hialeah and I basically said look I'm moving to LA in July and uh, one of my favorite holidays is the 4th of July so I said I'm going to do the last 4th of July here and then packing my bags that night and the next day I'm jumping in my, my Mustang GT and I'm driving across the country and that was it Wow. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. So, uh, you know, fireworks going off, everything great. I'm packing my Mustang. And my dad did accompany me on the trip. So, but I only let him go as far as Vegas. I said, I'll let you drive with me to huh. Vegas. And he flew back from Vegas? And from Vegas, he flew back. And okay. I drove the last, I guess, couple hundred miles by myself. Wow. Sounds now, like a Pixar story. That was the scariest <laughs> drive. Not because I didn't know where I was going, but I was, every mile I kept looking in the rear of me and going, what the hell am I thinking? Where am I going? I don't have any money. I don't have a job. I don't have a place to live. I had a hostel. I had no job. Nothing. And I'm like, man, I'm just a Hialeah boy. What the? <laughs> what in God's name am I going to be was doing? Was it Friday? It was, yeah. It was, it, was, it, was, it was Friday. I ain't got no job. <laughs> but some, you know that, that you have that loud voice of fear saying, turn back, go, you know, this is not for you. But there's a, there was a little voice that would always say, keep going keep going, push, it's gonna work out, don't worry about it, and I just went. Uh, got to the hostel, and it's funny, because this is gonna tie in, in a, you're gonna freak out. So I get to my hostel, which was on Hollywood and Highland. Uh, they had uh, just built in front of it, adjacent to the Man's Chinese Theater, the new, at the time, called the Kodak Theater, you know, where they host the Academy Awards. It's not called the Dolby Theater, yeah. but at the time it was Kodak, it was still a big deal. And a lot of things still being shot on film. And so they had just opened this mall next to it. And so I had remembered it from my first trip. I had been, and I said, it at least gave me a sense of comfort, of place, something to do. So I pull in and I check into my hostel and I decide to go check it out. And I had forgotten that the day I arrived and checked in was the night of the ESPY Awards being hosted at the Kodak Theater. So I just decided, you know what? I've never done this before. I've always seen it on TV, like the red carpet and stars walking in and people cheering. I'm like, let me just be one of those people. And I was still in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, what am I doing here? What am I gonna do? I don't have hardly any contacts. I have one appointment at a temp agency and I have no idea why I'm here. And so I'm in the crowd and I'm cheering. I'm trying to see you know, who, what sports celebrity is gonna come up and I see a bus pull up and people are just going crazy. And the bus door opens and the head coach comes out and he's wearing a U.M. cap. The U! It was the National Championship 2001 Miami Hurricane team getting off the bus. Oh, at the man. That is something. That was a sign. That was like, at that point, it's like the fear just went away. That's when my video, Here Comes the Hurricane, yeah. came out. It was 2001. We might just post that. On screen heat Miami. Oh, we have dot to com. post that. We gotta post it. We have to post that. Yeah. That was it was incredible. So that so that was a sign. That was the sign. So how now, did you meet Greg Bernstein? So the next day, going back to I had one interview set up at a, it was at a temp agency. You know, the temp agencies uh, you know, 
they offer temporary work for secretaries and office assistants and that kind of stuff. But within Hollywood, they're very important because the agencies, studios, and networks all use them right. as a place to try to find new workers and talent. And in the entertainment industry, particularly at that time, there was such a high turnover rate. So they were getting temps all the time because an assistant wouldn't work out, couldn't handle it, gets fired. They have to bring someone in just to answer phones. So, you know, Matt Stein told a similar story about starting off as a receptionist in New York. Matt Stein, check him out. Episode two. Episode two. And so I was in a similar situation where, you know, I needed a job. I needed to get my foot in the door. So I went to this temp agency and it was a really nice girl. I forget her name, but she's like, you know, the normal thing is you got to go in and you got to do a typing test. They want to see how fast you type. If you know how to use Word, Excel, it's all program that kind of grades you digitally or whatever at the time. And so I'm in there and I'm doing my test. Da, 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 da. I'm like, man, I hope I'm doing this good. I don't know how to do a spreadsheet. So I'm just kind of... She walks in all of a sudden and she looks, she has my resume in her hand. She goes, hey, you have agency experience? I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a small touchdown. touchdown all about the you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it was a small boutique modeling agency that we also handle some acts. She's like, oh my God, this is perfect. I need to send you to an agency. And I'm like, but I haven't finished my test. She's like, don't worry, nobody ever looks at that. Just shut the computer down and I'm gonna send you to ICM. And it was, I, I was aware of the big four at the time. And yeah. ICM was actually one of the ones that was really interested in getting my, my foot in the door. Uh, you know, that was, that place was legendary. I mean, yeah. Jeff Berg, the Iceman, who was the chairman of ICM, known famously, tying this back again, for negotiating the deal for Star Wars. <laughs> where he apparently locked himself in his office for 48 hours, did not come out until he had a deal. Yeah. Wow. Ed Lamato who another legendary agent represented Denzel Washington since he was an unknown Broadway actor. I'm going to give you an aside. Um, Just to let our audience know, I'm going to have a story coming up about Star Wars. I spent some time with Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who was the head of the, the Academy for Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and her brother was the marketer for Star Wars. Wow. I have a great Star Wars story coming up. I want to hear that. Okay, that was an aside. So, uh, temp agent says, uh, uh, listen, we need you to go to ICM. I'm like, when? She's like, now? I'm like, I didn't even bring a tie today. I was just doing my test. She's like, doesn't matter. Just get in your car and drive to ICM and you're going to meet with the head of human resources. So I pull up and I, I go into the interview. The lady's super chill, really nice. Again, I'm, I'm already feeling like a comfortable vibe. And, you know, because you hear horror stories about young assistants walking into a powerful agency or studio and just getting like steamrolled over. Uh, but this this lady was different. But, you know, she knew what she was saying. And she's like, you know, at the agencies at the time, we work hard, we play hard. That's our motto. And, you know, as long as you work hard, you're going to get to see and have access to some incredible things that you never even thought. But we also, and that's when I first learned how important information was and confidentiality. She's like, you may be out there partying with young Hollywood. You may have some information about a client that no one else knows, a deal that's still in development. You cannot say a word. Even if the person's your buddy, your roommate, but they could be working for a competing agency. They could be at a studio that's trying to steal that client away for another project. So that will get back to us. And you need to be extremely careful in how you handle this sort of uh, trust that's going to be put in you if you get a job here. Even if you're a secretary, an assistant, or you're working in the mailroom, we're all closely knit and we guard our information because information is power. 
And that's when I really started to get my master's degree in the entertainment industry to really understand what that meant. Uh, and so she's like, we have one agent. He's, a, he's actually the head of voiceovers and he's looking for a new assistant, a second, because, you know, the powerful agents, they sometimes have not only one, two or three assistants. Matt Stein spoke about that. Yes. About his role of going from a number three to a number two to a number one. With Bob Weinstein. With, with Bob Weinstein on the dimension side. So very similar in the agencies as well. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> she's like, you know, can, can you interview with him? I'm like, yeah, sure. Can I go home, put on a tie, come back tomorrow? She's like, no, today. Because I see on your resume you have agency experience. <laughs> Again. Uh, and so I'm hanging out in the lobby at ICM, you know, this kind of like th- th- their headquarters. They're, they're in Century City now, but it, w- it used to be a bank investment building. And uh, it had this really cool courtyard that had this huge pyramid that had like a water fountain that used to spout fire out of the top because the agents wanted a sense of intimidation when you walked in. And it was the artistic, re- the architectural rendering. If you look at it from a certain angle, it looks like a dollar bill. So it was money power and fire as you're walking into the building. Wow. Yeah, yeah like Game of Thrones type <laughs> shit. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there. You had know, you seen Swimming with Sharks by that point? Uh, I had not. I knew of it. I, I knew the, the legend behind it. But I, <laughs> Good I didn't, thing you didn't see that no, movie first. No, no, no. And I, you know, I read there parts might have been of like, some trepidation. There might have been. Yeah. And I, I didn't know what I was in for. So, you know, the assistant comes out. He's like very kind of like excited but nervous at the same time. And he's like, oh, you're Jose Martinez. Yeah, you're the one with agency experience. Okay, good. Come with me. And he kind of rushes me into like a back room and he's like yeah so this is the deal uh, I'm getting promoted from the second to the first I need someone to replace me so that way my first can become a junior agent in the department we get into it we start talking everything's great blah 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 he's like oh my god you're so cool and then tying this back again he's like oh my gosh where'd you go to school University of Miami one of our agents went to the UM he's, a, he's, a, he's an alumni I'm like oh my god that's great I'm already thinking, man, tomorrow I'm making deals with my UM friends hanging out. Uh, And he's like, wait here, I I want to bring in the first assistant so he can interview to see if Jeff wants to talk to you. And then he leaves about two minutes later, the first assistant, again, he's all frazzled. He still has his headset on, you know, he's just like doing a million things at once. He's like, oh man, this is cool. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They told me that you went to UM, like one of our agents. He's awesome. He's cool. Uh, you know, that's a really good school and uh, you have agency experience. So I think this might work. Let me, and I'm already thinking, man, I'm starting my job tomorrow. And then Jeff walks in and he's just like, he, he sits down and says, hey, hey, who are you? Uh, where are you from? Miami. Yeah, yeah. I think one of our... You worked at an agency? Oh, good. But wait, you work with uh, with models and talent. We do voiceovers here. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's it's, it's talent. I, I love voiceovers. I've I loved that world since I was a kid. Yeah, but you know what? I I think you'd be better suited upstairs, you know, with, with the talent agents, not really with voiceover. This is such a specific thing. Uh, but thanks for your time. And he throws back the resume and he walks out. Wow. So that was it. You got thrown back to the sharks. Back to the sharks. But yeah, long story short, went back to human resources. He's like, yeah, I heard it really, really well, but he was looking for something more specific. But I want to keep your resume on file because we want to start to bring you back for something. So I basically started temping. Um, I was I worked in the accounting department. I worked for an agent upstairs in talent. I got to work for a writer's agent. These were all like two, three, four day gigs, you know, that luckily I was able to get over the course of two or three months to literally keep me in Los Angeles. And then to keep you fed, keep me fed. Yeah, it was really like day to day, week to week. I didn't know what was going to happen. And then finally, uh, they brought me back. Uh, I had worked for a few days for the uh, the head of motion picture production accounting. Uh, this lovely uh, woman named Melinda Durham, who did all the accounting work for all the cinematographers, editors, production designers. She's actually the ones that dealt with the studios once the contract was signed to get their paychecks to process them. You know, to make sure the agencies also got their ten percent. All that kind of like stuff that happens behind the scenes. 
and I was just helping her organize her files. And um, her her what happened was that her one of her relatives passed away. And uh, I had worked for her for a couple days. She gave me a great recommendation. And I get a call Monday morning from the agency, from the temp agency saying, look, um, you know, Melinda, that nice lady you work for, she had a, a personal family matter. She has to go. Do you mind filling in for her for a week? I'm like, to be like the accountant? Oh, <laughs> like, wow. Well, I don't know anything about accountant. <laughs> but you know what they say in Hollywood. Fake if you don't know. You better wing it. Wing it and fake it till you make it. You better be so, flying. I said, the only thing I do know how to do, as my history as an assistant at the time, was to take very detailed notes. So that's what I'm going to do for a week. So anytime someone would call, like we would have these big guys. He was like one of the top um, um, stunt coordinators and work. He's a British guy. And his assistant would call because he was behind. The, for whatever reason, the studio wasn't processing his full payment. There was some kind of glitch with the contracts. And this woman who was managing his affairs was like terrified it's like he needs to get paid you don't understand if he doesn't get his money by tomorrow there's going to be a and I'm like taking notes like oh my gosh this man hasn't gotten paid who do I call do I call Fox do I tell the <laughs> and so I was just yes and I would always try to be calm of course you know we're handling it we're taking care of it he's gonna get his money just have him focus on his work it's all oh thank you thank you I'll tell him right away thank you so much and it was one call after another like that you know because that department was high volume you know these were people doing feature films television series high-end commercials, music videos, you know, these are millions of dollars in revenue going back and forth between all these clients. And I'm just taking notes, taking notes, taking notes. And at the end of the week, I literally just left a stack of notes, like a phone book high, if you remember what a phone book looked like, for the accountant. <laughs> well, you and, have to take it back to phone books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm like, I hope this is what she wanted. You know, I had sticky notes all over the computer. I had a bunch of red arrows pointing left and right and sideways. And, you know, then I get a couple a call a couple days later from the temp agency again. Melinda was so impressed. You handled everything so perfectly. She was able to clean everything up in the day. And, you know, there was rumors at the time that one of the agents in that department was looking for an assistant. Ah, and that agent's name was Craig Bernstein. Craig Bernstein. What a tale. Yeah. I knew it was going to be a Pixar journey. That was a Pixar journey. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that was it. And, and we can fast forward to today because you touched on so many things. Hmm. The SBs, ESPN. Right. The U. Yeah. Yeah. Hollywood. And now, the Mr. Agencies. Craig Bernstein. Mr. Craig Bernstein. So, yeah, let's cut to his interview, and then, you know, I can I can recap how our journey together continued uh, after this tremendous interview by Kevin Sharpley at the Miami Media and Film Market with Craig Bernstein. And after the interview, we have a lot more to talk about. Yes, so we do. Tuned. Here we go. Okay, we are live. So, um, can you please tell me where we are right now? Sure, we're at the Biltmore Hotel in the, uh, what is it, the Room of the Americas Conference Center. <laughs> and why are we here? Uh, I think we're here for the um, Miami... The Miami Media the, and yes. Film Market? Yes. Because is this is not here. your first no, stint at is, the Miami Media correct. and Film Market. Yeah, I always get the name wrong, though. <laughs> but you can name MFM for short. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah, so... This is my third time here. Actually. This is your third time here. What do you think? Uh, I think it's, uh, the programming is expanded greatly, and uh, there's a lot more panelists than when I was first here. 
How did it feel to be on the panels this time? How did it feel to be on the panels before? Uh, much more relaxed than previous years, and uh, um, it was good. It's always good. I always love coming down here and giving back. It's you know, it's always a great crowd. Okay, so I know that I told you I was, and something just hit my mind. Yep, one of my favorite shows. Man in the High Castle. Okay. We talked about it yesterday. Yep. Um, you represent two of the people. Yeah, Drew Bouton, the production designer, and Gonzalo Amat, the one of two cinematographers working on it. Yeah. So I definitely want to touch base on that program. Sure. Because there's so much about it that I love. Uh-huh. You know, and it is a Philip K. Dick. Yep. So it's fantastic. <laughs> we kind of start there. But I want to start with your career. And how you started off. Where are you from? Sure. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, went to school at the Newhouse School at Syracuse University um, and graduated in 1988. And unfortunately, that was the year of the writer's strike. So I uh, stuck out the summer in Chicago, waited for the strike to be over, and then drove out to L.A. Um, I was out there for about three weeks and got my first gig working in post-production um, with these uh, two line producers uh, on a movie they had just made in Los Angeles, and uh, I was going to be their post-production PA. Wow, three weeks? That's yeah. all it took you? Three weeks. Quick gig. Um, it was only supposed to be three weeks, and it lasted seven months, so it was pretty pretty good. Why um, L.A.? Um, cause that's where the business was. You know, I knew, um, when I was 15 years old, they were shooting a movie in the high school that was closed right by my house. And I snuck in and I sat there for four hours watching everyone work. And the movie was the breakfast club and it was John Hughes. And, uh, I was amazed and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So got home, got in big trouble cause I missed dinner and I was sitting there for so long that, um, my parents were angry, but I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So uh, that was that was a great day, actually. See, I thought you were going to say, because, you know, I lived in Chicago as a kid. And when I lived there, I, there was back-to-back blizzards, yep. you know. Absolutely. And everyone knows that Chicago is cold, yes. but more bitterly cold when that wind comes off the lake. Yep, absolutely. No, it definitely is. And... Uh, and I went back there and made a movie, actually, uh, with those same two guys that I got that first job with. Um, and uh, we did five weeks of nights in Chicago in the middle of the winter. So brutal. it was brutal. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that movie was Home Alone, and that was a super amazing experience in my life. Yeah. And, so. you know, historically, you know, one of the classics. Yep. Um, so I thought you were going to say... You were running from the cold. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't running from the cold. No parts in that. Nope, not at all. No, it's a great city. Um, so, um, so yeah, it, um, I graduated with about 40 kids that all came out to L.A. to try to start you know, their lives, either being agents, uh, working in production, working in broadcast journalism, directing, writing, advertising. I'd say there were about a dozen of us left. Wow. From that time. So that is the graveyard that is LA. LA. Yeah. Really tough is. town. Yeah. No, it's tough. I mean, um, you know, look, there were a lot of highs and lows in the businesses during the eighties through to today. And sometimes people just got caught up in the dips and, you know, needed to find work elsewhere. And that's really all it's about, you know? Um, I, I, 
you know, there's still a lot of kids that come out to LA and right after they graduate and think they're going to get right in there. You know, my best um, advice would be to uh, look at the agencies because those are sort of the nexuses of all the information, um, you know, music, television, film, um, advertising, broadcasting, agents represent all those types of people and it's always a great place to start at an agency so i certainly want to build up to that yeah. and you know give people an understanding of you know what the agency is and the system and and all of that but we're still back to the college kid okay. that got the post-production job. Right. Um, so that's in, in, in editing? Um, yeah, so um, so it was the cutting room where they're editing and assembling the film and the producer's office. And basically, this was back in the days of actual film. So a lot of it was just shuttling reels of film between the producers so they can look at something and back to the post house where the editors were working on it or to the lab where new things would get processed and you know they'd have more stuff that they could cut into so um so i was just really a runner post-production runner and then in between the runs they would give me scripts to read oh wow. and ask me what i thought of them and i would do reports on them coverage it's called Oh, so you just evolved directly into coverage. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, these these were two, you know, guys that, you know, bodies, they put them to work that were, you know, in the office. So you weren't just sitting around, which was great. I learned a lot from these two guys. You read anything good? Uh, no, most of it wasn't good. <laughs> okay. I thought a diamond in the rough, a little inside. It's so hard to find the diamond in the rough. That's why there's so many people reading so much material. Yeah, so is so that is a thing. Then. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely a thing. Absolutely. I mean, that's where these guys had had made their bones. That's where they, you know, found a script that they turned into Teen Wolf, these two producers, and they found another script that they turned into Mystic Pizza, these two producers. So, it's um, you know, they they were developers and to their credit, they had success. So, they were moving through it, you know. And then to pay the bills, they were line producers. You know, people who physically made the movie. So then we're moving from reading scripts to your next gig. Yeah, so I... um um, the two guys split up. One of them wanted to direct, and uh, and the other one was going to continue to produce. I went with the guy who wanted to direct. Um, unfortunately, you know, um, he directed one movie, and that was sort of the end, the beginning of the end. Um, so uh, I was at the point in my life where I'd worked freelance on commercials and television shows and feature films, um, had had some bad experiences with some producers and I was looking for a career late 20s needed a career and a friend of mine told me that uh, there was a job opening up with someone who was starting a production artist um, representation at one of the major agencies in town and he was what looking, is an agency he was looking for an assistant so a talent agency are really um, the people who are the grease in the wheels that makes Hollywood work you know, so they represent talent, um, whether it's a writer, director. Um, in my case, it's uh, below the line artists or production artists, um, cinematographer, production designer, costume designer, editor, line producer, visual effects supervisor, stunt coordinator, people like that. So, um, or it's writers, directors, it's musicians, it's 
actors. It's, you know, there's a whole range of people that are all represented at an agency. Um, our agency, in fact, also represents brands. You know, we represent Lyft and we represent Delta. And, you know, so it's super fun sort of stepping a little bit outside television and film and working with some of these major corporations. Um, but uh, going back a, a couple of steps, so um, I started at this agency working for this young guy who um, his mandate was to bring the British artists um, that were working in England and bring them over to Hollywood and get them more work in the States on U.S.-based movies. Um, they All they needed really was a work visa. It was a few thousand dollars through an attorney, and back in those days, it was not looked as a hurdle to hiring someone. Now it's a little bit different, and, um, and because of 9-11 and how difficult it is to get visas for people, you know, it's time and it's expensive. So it's a little bit more of a hurdle these days to bring people across the oceans um, than it used to be. Right. Um, So I started working um, with this gentleman at ICM, which is a major agency, and uh, he started building a business. You know, when I started with him, he had 35 clients and, you know, we started, you know, signing people and working together. And... uh, you know, I spent 21 years working with him. So wow. it was a long time. That is. So I just want to talk about the agency. Yeah. You know, so let's talk about Entourage. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, you know, Entourage gives, you know, an entryway into what the agency system is all about and how that works. And, you know, but you've been in it. So ICM is yes. one of the major yeah, absolutely. And, yes. and how many major agencies are there? There's really four. Mm-hmm. It's William Morris, which is now called Endeavor, CAA, UTA, and ICM. Those are really the four majors. And then there's a bunch of boutiques, and then there's some very small agencies. Um, and some of the very small agencies represent um, you know, young performer talent, uh, mostly just actors and actresses. Um, and, uh, and then others represent adults as well. Um, but uh, those are usually the smallest of the agencies are, are actor agencies. So let's just say, let's see, Robert Downey Jr. or The, the Rock or... Right. So they would be at one of the four majors, most likely. And if you want to get someone like that, you're going to run into a lot of hurdles, a lot of, uh, you know, talking to this person who has to talk to this person who has to talk to this person. Um, So it's a lot of that. And it's set up primarily to protect the artist and protect the flow of information out, as well as the scripts that are coming in, you know. When you represent Dwayne Johnson, you only want the best Dwayne Johnson movies for him, you know, and you really need some filters in front of yourself that will only let through the best of the material or the best of the material that comes with other good attachments, great directors or great writers or other great actors. So do they ever, let's say, you know, get a director that's in the same agency and a writer Absolutely. that's in it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we'd love, I mean, that's what you love, you know, to do is to, you know, really package it, to really put a bunch of people that all have the same exact thoughts about the material together 
to make something. So a script will come into the agency. It'll go to, you know, one of the big actors, let's say Mr. Cumberbunch. So Mr. Cumberbunch has a production company. He'll get a script and, um, his agent will take a look at it, and if it's good enough, pass it on probably to his production company, and they'll read it first. Um, finally, it will get to Benedict. He'll read it. If he likes it, there'll be a meeting. And from that meeting, we hope that you know there's a vibe between he and the director or he and the person that's going to hire him, and um, they'll make a deal. So I'm a person that you know believes cinematographers should be above the line <laughs> I do you know, too oh okay so we're yeah we're, we're, yeah, we're in uh, agreement on that because you know the visual style of the film you know it's the, the language you mm-hmm. know it's as much a language as you know what the actors are doing as much language as what anybody else is doing um, sure you work with some pretty big cinematographers yeah absolutely um, you know some of the biggest in the business working today yeah can you talk about some of that sure um you know there's um it's pretty much an incoming phone call business everybody wants the top guys and gals who do this um and uh they get a lot of directors a lot of scripts coming at them and you really have to you know think about what's the best thing next in their career for them you know, what's personally, what do they want to do, but also what maybe is the best thing for their career, you know, at can the you, time. Can you tell me some names of people that you work with at all? Sure. Rachel Morrison, um, Maddie Libatique, um, Bradford Young, um, Lena Sangren, um, Greg Frazier. Some of the projects that they've... Phil Pope, Tom Siegel. Gonzalo Amat. Um, well, Maddie Libatique uh, shot Star is Born, and he also shot Venom. Big um, difference. Greg Frazier is shooting Dune right now, and he also shot Vice. Um, Rachel Morrison, you know, has done everything from Mudbound, you know, which was a beautiful-looking film, um, to Black Panther. So, you know, it's... Not necessarily big and then little, um, movie-wise, size-wise. Um, it's really, you know, what inspires them. So, you know, you can't you can't push an artist in a certain direction. You know, you can lay out the pluses and the minuses for each of the different pieces of material they're looking at and the situations that they may or may not go into. Um, but it's really the artist's choice, you know, what they want to do next. So you represent also production designers? Correct. Yeah. So um, normally in the scheme of things, line producers are hired first. They'll do a board and a budget, meaning the production plan for the television show or the film. Um, And then usually the first hire thereafter is the production designer because you really want to start looking for locations, thinking about what the look of the movie is going to be so that you can pick the right city, the right places, the right environments to tell that story. So that'll usually be the first hire. So I think oftentimes, you know, especially the independents, you know, they may look past the production design to, you know, try to get a bigger name or try to get a, you know, can you just speak on how important the production design is? 
Yeah, so there are a lot of uh, a lot of independent producers um, that will look at their project and will say, you know what, the environment, the places, the locations that we choose aren't going to be the most important thing about the story. You know, maybe it's based on a famous play and it's more about the words, you know, and the actors and the chemistry between the actors. Um, and and some instances, that's where they'll decide to spend more of their money or less of their money. So usually a good conversation with the producer at the beginning will really give me direction on the types of people that I want to try to sell to them, you know, to work on their projects. Can you speak on the importance of production design and, and maybe a specific film or a specific TV show? Yeah, I mean, lots of times uh, when I'm reading a script, you know, I'll have one vision in my head of what the place looks like that they're describing in the script. But it's really after talking to the producer or the director that I'll find out what they're really looking for. And what I'll try to do is think about some of the people that I represent, what they've done that speaks to what the director and the producer are looking for, because that's really easy. Oh, I'm doing a Western. Oh, Joe, who I represented, did this Western last year, you know, he gets it. So um, it, it could be something as simple as that, or it's, you know, a real original idea that needs someone that's really gonna put the time, the effort in, um, in finding these perfect locations. But it's also casting, it's also, getting the right chemistry between individuals. You know, you have someone that's a very needy director, you know, you got to give them a production designer that isn't going to be bothered with getting phone calls every 10 minutes about something, you know, or a nervous director. They've only done comedies and now suddenly they're doing a drama. You know, you really want to cast the right production designer, the right DP to set the right mood on set so that they're more comfortable. So it's really about what has this director done before? What are they looking for? And who are they? You know, that I'm looking at when I'm thinking about putting lists together that will go to the decision makers and out of those lists will be scripts sent to certain people and therefore interviews with those people. And that's sort of how the process works. Yeah, so we cover production, design, cinematographers, yep. but you represent quite a lot of different types of talent. Yeah, normally the next one hired is the costume designer. Um, the costume designers usually need a good bit of prep to get all the wardrobe for all the characters ready. Sometimes it has to be built. Many times they have to go through the stock that's available in all the costume houses to pull things that are appropriate for the film. Um, so that's usually the next hire. Editors are usually hired, you know, last out of those four disciplines. Um, you're also hiring an AD, a first AD. That person's, you know, creating the board, which is what will be shot each and every day, what scenes and in what order. Um, they work very closely um, with the production designer, the costume designer, the line producer and the director and they'll scout these locations together um, and then think about once they get to each location, what is gonna happen at that location? In what order are the scenes gonna be done? You know, um, Does the cinematographer need the light in the windows over here at the end of the day? So therefore, we're gonna start at the other side of the house and we're gonna move this way, you know? Um, there's all kinds of considerations 
about how to order the scenes that you will shoot per day. And that's the job of the first assistant director. So I just want to kind of bring this full circle and then I have one question after that, which is a case study. So we talked about the man in the high castle. Yep. I'm a super fan. Yep. So this is great uh, doing this. And thank you for doing this, by the way. For sure. Um, So we did talk about the cinematography, who the cinematographer was actually at the Miami Medium Film Market last year. That's and right. He gave an, um, a master class of master classes. That's great. He really hear. broke it down. I was really impressed by the church scene mm-hmm. because for me, that's one of the best scenes that I've seen in television, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and also the production designer. That's correct. Right? So Drew you represent Bowen. both. Yeah. Yep. And, and have you been to the set? Yeah, I go every year actually. So yeah, I've been a bunch of times. Yeah. So can you? talk about the synergy between the two of them mm-hmm. how that works how this connection with the project mm-hmm. even in the beginning phases and then to you know what is not going to be their last season yeah that's correct i'll cry about that later that's <laughs> <laughs> so um so drew bouton um the production designer i would say it was God, like eight months before they even started shooting. And they contacted us. Uh, one of the producers had seen some of Drew's work and wondered if he would be interested and, uh, and asked him to come in, read the script that was done and, and come in and have a conversation. And he just loved the challenge of creating, you know, what would the United States have looked like if we didn't win the war, the Second World War. Um, and the Nazis controlled the east part of our country and the Japanese controlled the west half. Um, and there was a sort of no man's man land in the middle. So um, he started uh, using a lot of different motifs and ideas that he had. And he started sketching out some ideas. And, and really, that's what got him the job. So I just think over the years, Drew did some masterful designs uh, on the show. Um, And obviously, because he's designing the environments that the actors are going to be in, it was a close collaboration with Gonzalo Amat, the cinematographer. So they would talk about where practical lights, actual lamps and um, overhead lighting that would be in a room normally where it would best suit filming the actors so that's what their collaboration does so um, the production designer is always looking for places where he can put actual lights in the set that will help the cinematographer Um, usually those are all put on dimmers so they can go up and down and um, and then usually the bulbs are changed out for color temperature so um, so they work very closely together Um, then they talk about you know where doorways are where windows are where the furniture is going to be so that they can then start thinking about how the actors will move within the environment and that's another way that the two of them will collaborate with the director of course Um, but that's that's another place that they they get to Um, they um, will always be talking about colors and then they'll bring in the costume designer as well you know costume designer needs to know are these brown walls are these green walls because don't want to put the brown suit on the guy standing in front of the brown wall so just simple stuff like that will get worked out in with a color palette that the production designer creates with the director's help um, for the film um, or the tv show and uh, then everyone will follow that color pattern Um, but specific actors and specific wardrobe will be you know coordinated with 
patterns of um, you know of uh, furniture as well as wallpapering as well as paneling. So, got to think about all that stuff with the colors. So they'll work very closely together. So you're on set, Man in the High Castle. The first time you get on set. Yep. It was in the diner, and it was uh, uh, Karin Kusama's episode. Um, and I had met her before um, on another set of another film that she had done, so I knew her. Her and Gonzalo had a great working relationship, um, and, uh, and it was super cool. They were shooting in a very sketchy part of Vancouver. Um, they'd cleared out the, bought the whole and diner filled it with extras and sitting behind the monitor and watching the magic happen it was great could you feel the work of uh, of, of uh, gonzalo the, and the production design and could you you know yeah in that particular um scene it was really interesting because there were these mirrors in the middle of the booth and i just thought that gonzalo had put together an incredible shot that sort of looked at someone coming in to the diner through this mirror that was between the two main char- characters. And the mirror was also used every once in a while to show one of the characters rather than shooting them straight on. They shot him through the mirror. And I just I just thought it was great. And it was a practical mirror that was on, present in every booth in the diner, but it was just something that he ended up using you know, to great effect. And obviously the production designer had picked a diner that you know had this element in it that... At, he knew and uh, that the cinematographer could take advantage of. Yeah, I know that scene. Well, I know all the scenes. Yeah. I watch the show back and forth. It's like, you know, a case study, you know, for anyone uh-huh. that, you know, loves, um, you know, cinematography because it's one of the strongest in terms of that production design period pieces always, yep. you know, uh, give you that um, for lack of a better word master class yeah you know in terms of um understanding you know how all of the machinery works absolutely so you see your leaving chicago self heading to la and you want to give that self some advice i would probably say do as much as you can um as varied as it gets you know Um, I don't think I did that as much as I should have. Um, I would also say, you know, think before speaking, probably more than I did. Um, I would definitely, you know, when things are repeated once or twice, two or three times, I would say um, they're important and to really listen. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) You know, you can't say much more than that. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank uh, you. Can you tell me your name again? And Craig where you Bernstein, work? and I'm a senior agent at UTA, United Talent Agency in Los Angeles. And we're back. Back. That was a great interview. Yes. Craig well, Bernstein gave it. He, Yeah. Yeah. He has so much knowledge. I mean, he really is a... And uh, what a career. Great career. Yeah. Yeah. Spans. I know. Coming from Chicago, moving to LA, working for these amazing producers, getting involved with John Hughes projects. I mean... Chicago. What Ch- movie was that? Well, Home uh, Alone. Well, Home Alone is the one he worked on, uh, I believe, for one of the producers. But he also was the uh, he was there for the first as experience being with the Breakfast Club. The Breakfast Club. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. 
Yeah. But uh, but yeah, Craig's a great guy. So I, I, I think we left it with how I had not yet met Craig in, in sort of my little journey into Los Angeles. And then again, I get a call from the agency after having done a few temp jobs there and other places at Fox Sports. And I was at a commercial talent agency called Special Artists for a while. And I get the call that ICM Production is looking for a new assistant because the current assistant to Craig Bernstein got a job working for a very powerful manager in Los Angeles and he was moving on. And so I come back in and I had already had some exposure to that department working with the accounting team. And so I get the the call and this time it was just, there wasn't three assistants, you know, Craig had one assistant. Uh, It was a gentleman named Alex Columbian who we became very good friends after, uh, also raised in South Florida, went to high school here and he, he, I believe, went to Boston College and moved to L.A. about three, four years before I did and had gotten the, the previous job with Craig and was with him for a while. And what was interesting is that, you know, he was bilingual. And I think part of what Craig was looking for and the department was looking for was bilingual assistance because at the time they were very interested in developing relationships with talent in Latin America. Yeah. And that's really huge now. That's huge. It's, it's a global huge. marketplace. Yeah. And we talked about the global. We've been talking about the global marketplace. Yeah. And how important that is. So. Yeah. So. So, yeah, I get uh, I sit down with with Alex and, you know, Alex is great, great friend. He's a great character. We got to get Alex Pereira in here yes. uh, for an interview. And so he, you know, he liked my vibe, you know, but again, he was also giving me lessons and he's like, at an agency, you need to know who the heads are of every major network of every, he's like, you know, who's the CEO of Disney? Who is the vice president of production here? Who's that? Like, you need to know those names off the top of your head. And if, if Craig says, get me so-and-so, you already got to know the number, know how to find it and read the trades every day. So he was like already training me. You know, that's great. And I think that's great advice for everyone. Yeah. You know, I mean, I run a multimedia company, a production company. So, you know, I have to read the trades every morning Mm -hmm. and know what's going on. Mm -hmm. But I think even because I started as an actor, as a model, as we spoke of before. Right. But even for actors, you know, know what company is with what company, know which company is getting eaten. Right. Taken over by what company. Right. You know, and who is moving amongst the entire industry. Right. And that's writer, producer, director, anyone. So that was like great advice for just about anyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, And so getting all that knowledge all at once as you're kind of entering this world and really seeing that, you know, this is, um, you know, working at the agencies, especially at the time, was very similar to having like almost like a Wall Street job where things are moving so quickly and you're expected to be one or two steps ahead of everything because, you know, it's, let's say, the agent's job to protect the clients. It's the assistant's job to protect the agent. So you need to be constantly looking out for them, feeding them information, giving them an idea of what's coming next so that this machinery can continue to flow between outgoing calls, ingoing calls, meetings, follow-ups on meetings, sending scripts out, all that deal has to happen in in almost like a rhythm. Mm -hmm. And so you learn your agent's rhythm. And and when I met Craig uh, that day, the very same day, Alex said, oh yeah, just hang out for a couple minutes. He brought me in, I met Craig, and I could already tell that he was different than the other agents that I had met and I had worked for, uh, at least on a temporary basis. Like he was, you know, no nonsense, but he was also, he wasn't, he didn't have that chip. I felt like that ego chip on his shoulder. Swimming with sharks. He wasn't a shark, you know, but he was very, very smart and very astute. And he did this job in a very kind of workmanlike way. Right. So not a shark, but sharp. But sharp as a tack, like you could not get around him. So, but he, he knew his things and he protected his clients 
that was probably the time he was a shark viciously. <laughs> he was so protective of his clients because he he cared. You could tell he cared about them. Sharp shark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, we got along well. Uh, I told him a little bit about my background and and funny just to kind of wrap it up to tying it back to Miami. He's like, oh, that's so interesting because right now we have several clients on two huge projects. Uh, you know, the Bad Boys Two sequel shooting right now. So I'm gonna ha- fly down to Miami to see clients on that, and then I also have clients on Too Fast Too Furious because if you remember Miami. Oh yeah, that's right. Both of those productions were shooting simultaneously when we were at the top in Miami. Yes. So uh, obviously I get the job with Craig and we have a great relationship. I ended up working with him for over three years. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And it was huge. And then so, yeah, I'll never forget the first trip that he took was to Miami, of course. And it's like, you know, signs in the universe that the very first trip that he takes to visit clients on a set, I'm in LA and now he's in Miami trying to meet one of his clients on a set. It was a night shoe. So from Miami airport, he's driving north. You know, I'm helping him to, because I I still remember from memory how to navigate the streets in Miami without it. And I was able to tell him actually how to take a shortcut cut through Hialeah so imagine this crazy four ways yes and he's trying to find this little river district where they're shooting this really cool warehouse scene for for one of the movies and he winds up at a gas station in Hialeah and I'm in Beverly Hills oh wow yeah and this was literally like what three months after I had packed my bags and left Wow. And so now I'm sitting in Craig's office giving him direction. Google Maps. Hialeah. Your my Google own, Maps. In my head. Hialeah Maps. Yeah, to get to a Hollywood movie being shot in in, in the Miami River District. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. That's that was, awesome. That's the full story. And, and Craig's become, again, a really good friend and a mentor to me in my career. And he comes to our Miami Media and Film Market, as he mentioned several times, and really just a wealth of knowledge. So Yeah, for me, The Man in the High Castle, which is one of my favorite shows, right. he has two clients that are on that show. And this mm-hmm. is going to be the last season, but it was really great talking to him about that show. And then he has a client that's on another one of my favorites, Dune. Right. And so from what I understand, he was on set right after the Miami Medium Film Market. Right. And, you know, I'm just geeking out. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting journey. The agent's journey is, like I said, not the most obvious job in Hollywood, but I'll tell you, it's it's one of the most interesting. It's one where you will learn the most, the quickest. And it's one that has longevity Mm -hmm. because... If you're a good agent and you do well by your clients, you know, that's a steady gig, you know, which is rare in our industry. Yeah. Speaking of longevity, the VMAs. Tell me about the VMAs. They were last night. Well, I'm just going to give a couple of highlights. Lizzo, Mm. once again, gave it. Lizzo's performance was off the rip. All right. So Lizzo is one. The VMAs was high tinged. And it was really, really, really off the chain. Right. But we had a Miami hometown hero, one big. And I am not going to pronounce her name the way that you can pronounce it. So please, sir. Camila Cabello. That was great. (laughs) She's great. Another hometown girl from uh, Palmetto High School. Palmetto High School, born in Cuba, raised here in 305. Along with Sean Mendez. Yeah. Sean. Don't know where he was raised. I, I think he's Canadian, though. Is he? I want to say Sean is Canadian. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but Camilla, definitely a Miami girl, has that Miami vibe, that Miami swagger. Swagger. <laughs> so we got to give it up. Yeah. Give it up to Camilla for, I think they won, what, best collaboration? 
Yeah. For Senorita. That's it. That's good. Love that song. That's ah, great. Like, between Havana and Senor, like, she's on a roll. Some yes. Good stuff coming. I'm so excited for this young, blossoming career. Like, she's she's going to do really big things. Uh, also read that she will be a featured artist on SNL this year. Yeah. The upcoming season, which is going to be huge. It's blowing up. It's blowing up. SNL, I think, is going back to its roots. They had such a good experience, I think, last year with Adam Sandler coming back after, what, 25 years? Now, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, baby. Coming back. Can't oh, wait for it. man. Eddie Murphy. I cannot wait. Cannot and wait. That'll be in December. So, SNL is really starting to crank again. So, I'm, I'm excited for that. And speaking of rolling back, I want to roll back to our Paul Brett episode. All right. He talked about the show Fleabag. Yeah, Fleabag. Fleabag is nominated for I don't know how many Emmys. I've been watching that show. Mm. It is crazy. Wow. That is one of my favorite shows now. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Paul Brett. Yeah. For Good. dropping that suggestion. <laughs> Good recommendation. I haven't seen it yet. But yeah, you um, all got to see that show. I, I will take both of your recommendations now and, and put it on the list. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's awesome. So well, one more thing that's going on before we kind of tease the next episode. But uh, in the going back to the corporate media, the succession world. So, another favorite show. Yes. Another one that I got. A, Emmy, I, that's, Emmy nominated. High on the list, uh, according to Kevin. I need to watch that next. That's definitely right after Glow. Succession is coming. And so the toy company Hasbro, of all things, has made a $4 billion acquisition of E1, Entertainment One, which uh, is a huge media production and distribution company that produces and owns a bunch of projects and intellectual properties, amongst which, which I think is what triggered the purchase from Hasbro, Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig, big moves. Big moves. And Death Row. Of course, yeah. E1 goes from Peppa Pig and PJ Masks to owning Death Row Records. What is that? That isn't, it just goes to show like how much of a wide spectrum some of these even media companies are a part of. All yeah. the, I mean, there could be no further business from the Peppa Pig preschool <laughs> to the chronic. <laughs> Are we going to see Peppa the Pig gangsta? We might. I mean, that would be... Gangsta Peppa? I I think that may muddle the preschool brand, but, you know, if you got some creative brand, maybe Phil Lord can do something. (laughs) Into the Peppa-verse. Oh, man. All right, I'm just going to sit on the mic. I'm just going to go one, two. All right, Peppa, here we go. One, two. One, two, three into the funk. Snoop Daddy Daddy Pig. Um, so that would be hilarious. Would but be. I don't think it's going to happen. Not officially. Phil Lord, we're calling you out. we got to make this happen. Into the Pepperverse. Phil Lord, another uh, Miami. Yeah. Cuban-American. Shout out. Yeah. Shout out to Phil Lord. That has to be on our list of interviews to acquire. Yes. Won the Academy Award. Yeah. Best animation. So, yeah, no, yeah, he, he did win the Academy Into Award. Into the Spider-Verse. Into the spider Great uh, property for Sony, who's doing a lot of great things with... Along with Chris Miller. Yeah, with Chris Miller, his writing partners from, from back in the day. So, he's he's really doing it. I mean, a lot of these people are. And, and I'm just, you know, interesting to be see how this world continues to evolve, particularly... Again, with these media companies acquiring one another, now they're saying other networks and, and studios like uh, the smaller ones, Lionsgate, AMC Networks, MGM, could all be primed for some type of acquisition or merger in the hmm. near future. Wow. It's it's all about... Times are yeah. changing. Uh-huh. 
So next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the streaming wars. Yes. They're getting vicious. Oh, man, that's getting good. I can't wait. That's death row. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is getting that that precarious. Yes. Yes. So. But we did speak on MTV mm-hmm. and part of that company, which is Viacom. Viacom is the parent. Yeah. Which is, again, remerging with CBS. Remerging with CBS. Yeah, so um, under that umbrella is VH1. Mm-hmm. So we have next week's episode, a great one coming for you. And I'm going to say this one and destroy it. Medicamen Lopez. Ooh. <laughs> we pulled into the interview vault and it's none other than our homegirl, Medicamen Lopez. And this one was done by our very own Jose Luis Martinez. Yes. So I, we're excited about this one for next week. Yeah, she's she's a great young talent. Again, has worked a lot with BH1 doing the reality series Love and Hip Hop. Love and Hip Hop. She brought Love and Hip Hop to Miami. She did. She was a huge champion for that for that part uh, that extension that of the franchise. Yeah. So she'll tell us all about how that happened and how she sort of got started in the in the business through the recording and just talk about Death Row. I mean, she was working with Slip and Slide Records, which is homegrown Miami, but put out some amazing artists. Oh, oh, they have their trick own. Daddy. Yeah, Trick and Trina and and all these. I think at one point Rick Ross was Rick with Ross, them. yeah. Pitbull. Pit, yeah. Talk about Mr. 305. Uh-huh. So, yeah, a lot of interesting episodes to come. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that, that we're going to do Mari Carmen next. She's great. Yes. So, another one. Another one. In the can. Like, like DJ Khaled would say, another one. Yeah. <laughs> so check on the website for our extras from last week. And also we have our song from last week, the full version. Oh, yeah. Mercedes. Check it out. Until I know I'm into you. Full version on the website. Love it. Until next week. We're into you. Hopefully you're into us. We'll see you on the next one. That's a wrap. Boom. <laughs>